Lord, I just thank you for this time. And I ask, Father, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would send your Holy Spirit in a large measure, not only to be um, uh, with my heart and my, and my words, but also, Lord, with the heart and the minds of those that are listening. I pray, Father, that you prepare us for um, what's coming not only in the church, but the things that are around the world that are designed to um, that are designed to help us, Lord, but also to dis- to uh, distract us and to avert, Lord, the perfect plan that you have for each one of us. And so I ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so um, coming out ministries was started nine years ago. And it was designed or started by five different individuals that already had individual ministries. It was two uh, women that were sisters and then three guys of which myself and and Ron Woolsey are the originators that are left now. Uh, But we have other people that have come into the ministry and gone during that time in the last nine years. And what's really amazing, I find, is that there's a lot of people wherever we go that come to us privately or openly and talk about how they also have been on their own unique journeys. Um, Our ministry, I think, is really um, kind of telling, and we have a lot of popularity, not necessarily because we're that dynamic, but because the subject matter is. Uh, Now we know that this is going on around the world, and there's just no way that the church can even avoid this anymore. We have to address this. And unfortunately, the reason why my colleagues and I walked away from church culture was because there wasn't anyone talking about this issue. And so we basically felt no other choice but to leave the church. What I find amazing is that through somebody's prayers, each one of us came back into a church, into the church through a relationship with Jesus Christ and then found the meaning and purpose. However, there still weren't any resources in our denomination or in Christianity that were really helping to guide the conversation. Now that gay marriage is legal and we have um, LGBT rights knocking on the doors of Christianity, the church has no choice. We have to talk about this thing. We just can't sweep it under the rug anymore. And so I find that um, amazing that, that God can even use adversity as a way to also force us to talk about these, these things. And I want to use this quote from Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery, and Divorce. Chapter 11, if you read it, is amazing because she really talks about the issue that's going to be at the end of time. Licentiousness, this is the quote, one of Satan's enchantments, the licentious practice of the Hebrews accomplished for them that which all the warfare of nations and the enchantments of Balaam could not do. They became separated from their God. Their covering and protection were removed from them. God turned to be their enemy. So many of the princes and people were guilty of licentiousness that it became a national sin, for God was wroth with the whole congregation. The very same Satan is now working to the very same end, to weaken and destroy the people who claim to be keeping the commandments of God as they are just on the borders of the heavenly Canaan. Satan knows it is his time. He has but little time left now in which to work, and he will work with tremendous power to ensnare the people of God upon their weak points of character. There, this whole chapter is, in my opinion, really the revelation of the, the, uh, what would you call it, the internet society and how we've been uh, bombarded by internet pornography and things that are on the internet. 
I have young people coming to me that were saying that they were seven and eight years old when they became addicted to pornography. Um, I've had young students, young women in their early 20s uh, coming to me in Europe talking about their addiction to pornography and masturbation, knowing that they were not ready for marriage and the commitment of marriage. And, and you know, these were attractive young women that were smart and intelligent, and yet they were addicted to pornography. So this isn't just an issue for men. It's also an issue that women struggle with as well, not just young people, but also old people as well. It was really difficult managing and trying to find answers to the questions that I had, thinking that the onslaught of not only the history of spending 20 years in the gay culture, but also many years addicted to pornography, how was I going to find the victory over these things in the church, especially from a church that wasn't talking about it? Thinking that I was the only one as I started this ministry talking about the LGBT issue, I realized that the pornography issue is really number one in the church. Um, I want to share, this is a picture of me. I was about 12 years old there. Uh, I was already struggling with many things, identity issues. Um, I wasn't necessarily struggling with same-sex attraction, but there were things that were going on that at 40 years old, when I came to Christ, I said, I want to know how. I want to know why at, at my earliest thoughts that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. That's the only reality that I know. That's probably the earliest uh, thought that I can actually remember now as an adult but I didn't know how I got there. I just thought that God had made a mistake. I remember praying to God. I acknowledged that God existed and I asked him to change me. But each and every morning, imagine the disappointment of that little boy waking up as a boy again. And so this followed me until I was 20 years old. It didn't go away. I didn't develop through it or work through it. And instead, as I recognized God more and became an Adventist Christian in my early teens, I remember thinking to myself that a sex change is really the answer. When same-sex attraction came my way, when puberty came, I thought, well, if I was a woman, then my attractions would be okay and my body would be okay. So what that did is that had a driving force even more to reject the body that I had, also the thought that if I was female, that men would love me, and that also I would be able to express myself according to the thoughts and the attractions that I had uh, through puberty. So again, at 20 years old, unable to find that, that I could change those attractions, I was in a relationship with a girl, I broke up with her, I moved to Florida, and I remember thinking to myself, after I ran into a girl that was also uh, a lesbian, we decided we were going to go back to the church once and for, uh, for all and find out if the church had any answers for people like us. So I handpicked this one guy I watched after several months, and I sat down with him, and as I started to share you know, what was going on, he said, well, Mike, what's up? And I said, well, it has to do with women. And before I could say another word, he said something very derogatory about women. I knew I wasn't safe to share, and I walked out of church that night after I listened to him, unable to share my, my issue, and I walked out of church, and I said to God, I'm done. I can't get my sexuality and my religion to come together. You haven't helped me. You haven't healed me, and this is what you send to help me? And so it was from that point on that I went into the gay life. They have rights now. They have laws on our books that would basically protect a child like me that thinks that they're in the wrong sex. They can actually go against the will of the parents and allow this child to take these, these um, body morphing uh, hormones to prevent not only the puberty process, but to allow them to develop in the sex that they desire against the will of their parents. Now, if that was available for me in the 60s when I was a kid, I would have been standing first in line. Fortunately for me, it was not, because then when I was 20 years old and went out into the gay culture, what I needed 
was male affirmation. My father was abusive and loud. He was in the Navy. So my father wasn't home a lot. So that when my dad was home, he was angry and abusive. So in this little boy's mind, I could see my mother who was stable. She was quiet. She was consistent. And then here's my dad, this crazy man that's abusive. And I thought, well, if that's my sex, I reject that. And in my defense, I detached from my father and I wanted to be just like my mother. I didn't have another role model. I didn't have a brother or uncle to give me any influence or to give me an example of what uh, masculinity looked like that was safe and attractive. And so I patterned after my sisters. And so that followed me until I was 20. So imagine now being in the gay culture and all of a sudden realizing that masculinity is more valuable than femininity. So if I butch it up a little bit and work out in the gym, I found that I got all the attention from men that I desired. Now this did cause a, um, this did, take away the struggle for identity, thinking that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body, but it didn't take away the same-sex attraction. But what it did do is by the time I was in my mid-20s, I realized that I was completely comfortable as a male. I did, had no more desire to be a female, and that had left. Imagine the trauma that would have happened if all of a sudden in my 20s, if I'd have had a sex change at 16 or 17 years old, realizing now that I'd really messed up and my body would have been mutilated beyond you know, repair. There's no way that you can go back. So these are just some of the struggles, and, and every person's uh, story is completely different than somebody else's. Uh, I was transgendered, I believe, because of the rejection of my father. I've heard many stories that are all over the map about how they may have been rejected by the mother. I know uh, someone whose uh, mother wanted a boy or a girl, not a boy, and so when he was born a male, he was rejected. So for him, his thought was, well, my mother would love me if I was a girl. So that also started the transgender process for him as well. I think it's unsafe or unfair to assume that everybody's situation is the same. You know, we all have different fingerprints and therefore everyone's story and how they get to where they are is completely different as well. So this is me at 12 years old. I'm standing in front of my uncle's truck. It was a really difficult day. I talk about how the devil was putting these knots in the rope of my life, even at, at an early age, even before I was conscious, the rejection of my father, being surrounded by girls. I was raised with three sisters. I had three aunts that were about the same age. I went to 10 schools within 12 years. So you can imagine most of the time I hung out with the girls, but I was fine with it. The boys in school that called me sissy, queer, faggot, homo, what that did is it pushed masculinity even further further away from me, and that was what I needed to be affirmed in my own masculinity. So again, this, these are all some of the different pieces that put together this puzzle for me for why I was transgendered and same-sex attracted. Not every person that is transgendered is homosexual. As many as uh, transgenders that are gay are also heterosexual in their attractions. So you can't make that assumption either that just because somebody is transgendered that they're homosexual. That makes sense? All right. So then here I am at 12 years old. I talk about the fact that Satan gave me three knots in my rope of my adolescence in one day. That morning, my father had brought us back, my sisters and I, from spending two weeks with my dad. He had left my mother um, for this um, for this Adventist woman that was working as a waitress in our family's restaurant. So now he's married to her. He's divorced from my mom. And, and look at that little kid's face. You know, I look rather pleasant, but there was a lot going on. I just spent two weeks with my dad and his new wife. And imagine watching this woman touch your father the way your mother used to touch him. And imagine your dad touching this woman the way he used to touch your mom. 
I, I felt like my mom was left out. I missed my mom. I felt bad even when we had a good time, thinking that, wow, how can I be having such a great time when mom's at home alone? So finally, my dad drops us off at the house, and my mother had had an auction the night before and sold everything that we had. We were losing the house. We weren't able to, to make the payments on it, and we were about to move to Detroit, Michigan, and to live in a low-income housing project. So here you pull into the driveway and you see all your furniture's gone other than what's in the back of my uncle's truck. But my mother gave us an hour to say goodbye to our friends. So the first knot was my dad and his relationship with his new wife. Second knot was the fact that my whole world was completely upside down and pulled out from under me because we were moving and leaving without any notice at all. So I went with my friends, my two best friends, and I remember we went to our favorite fort. And uh, my two best friends, they had this new game they wanted to show, and they stepped off a few feet away from me and engaged in a homosexual act. So here I am, 12 years old, witnessing all of this, these three knots that the devil had put in my, in my life that day, and I just freaked out and I ran back home. I never saw my friends again, and that's me at the end of the day, standing in front of my uncle's truck with a very pleasant look on my face. And I think that that's what each one of us carries whenever we live in a world that is filled with defilement and filled with all kinds of things that we don't ask for that are just heaped on us. And so many times there are many people in the audience that have gone through either similar things or their own things. So as kids, we learn to stuff them in, not knowing that they eventually will have an effect on us as we grow up and become older. So this was an example that I wanted to share. My first exposure to pornography came when I was 10 years old. My mother actually gave me my father's porn magazines when he moved out. She could tell that Mike had some issues and she thought maybe these images would help solidify like heterosexuality for me. I don't know. But I remember looking at the images in these magazines and I remember, I can even remember their names. I'm 59 years old and still I can remember the names and the images that I saw on those pictures at 10 years old. And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't want to have them sexually. I knew that men desired these women, and so I thought that if I was like them, that maybe men would love me. And so again, my mother's efforts to help solidify masculine identity for me actually worked in reverse. What it did is it made me desire to become more feminized. So you can see how things started to get switched. This followed me. Pornography followed me uh, even into my adult years, even as a Christian. It was something I struggled with even as an elder in my church. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, too. So at 20 years old, I marched into the, the gay culture, and they had their arms open wide. The church either wouldn't talk about it or the denigrating comments that they would made were rejecting. And so I felt I didn't belong in the church, so I belonged in the gay community. And so as I was in the gay community, I remember marching in the gay pride parades. I tell people I was the poster child for the gay life. Uh, I was an aerobics instructor and a hairdresser, and you can't get any more gay than that. And so as I was living the life and living the dream and the, was never faithful in the five significant relationships that I had, I was already a sexual addict very early on. But I remember marching in the gay pride parades and seeing the flags and the, and the signs from the Christian community that talked about how God hates queers and, and how God, uh, thank God for AIDS. And AIDS also came out in 1981, the very same year that I did. So what that did is it made me ashamed that I'd ever called myself a Christian and it didn't draw me back to them. Instead, it did anything but push me further away from them. My whole life was identified with this 20 years of living in the gay culture, 20 years as a sexual addict. In five significant relationships in my life, I wanted nothing to do with God. Why would I want anything to do with God who I thought had already rejected me? My thoughts had become the fulfillment of Genesis 6 verse 5. 
I was only always looking for opportunities to act out sexually. I would act out as often as three times in a day with different men and as often as four or five times a week. You do the math for 20 years, never used protection ever. It's a total miracle that I stand in front of you today. I had sex with many people that would be dead within a year of having sexual contact with them, and yet I knew that I was playing Russian roulette with every sexual encounter. In Matthew 18, 20, it says, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And the reason why I'm here is because I had three sisters that were praying for me. So while I wasn't praying for myself, they were actively praying for me. They loved me. My sister in the, in the top right here, she actually worked with me in my hair salon. Uh, my lover and I had opened up a hair salon, and I thought that she totally accepted me in my gay life. She was supportive. She was loving. She always invited my lovers over for holiday meals. But she was praying for me on her knees, her and, her, her and my sisters. They were praying for me. And so God was able to intervene at a time when I wasn't praying for myself and to give me another opportunity to come back. And that's why I'm here today. I want to share with you just a couple of quotes because now what's happening is there's this movement coming into Christianity, into our denomination that's basically saying that, that homosexuality, LGBT attraction is a blessing from God and that basically that the Bible is archaic and that Paul and Moses are irrelevant. There's even, we have seminary professors that are actually saying that there are many ways of interpreting the Bible. And so I want to share with you, even though we have this onslaught of these groups that are coming into our denomination, it's very clear that even according to science and other people, that homosexuality is, is flexible, that people can uh, move in and out of, of attraction and also to experience something other than what they are naturally drawn to. This is a quote from Camille Paglia. She's a lesbian activist. And this is what she says. She says, is the gay identity so fragile that it cannot bear the thought that some people may not wish to be gay. She says sexuality is highly fluid and reversals are theoretically possible. However, habit is refractory and that means very difficult to change once the sensory pathways have been blazed and deepened by repetition. The more you participate in that behavior, the more it locks you on. That's exactly what I experienced in that life. But she says a phenomenon, or she said the sensory pathways have been blazed and deepened by repetition. She compares it to a phenomenon that is obvious in the same struggle with obesity, smoking, alcohol, and drug addiction. But she says helping gays how to learn how to function heterosexually if they wish. And I think that that's the operative phrase here. If they wish is a perfectly worthy aim. Coming Out Ministries isn't here to drag gay people into heterosexism. Our responsibility, our message is about letting people know that the power of Jesus Christ still exists today. And that why would I give up my boyfriend? Why would I give up my sexual freedom into a relationship with Jesus Christ that calls me to be celibate? Is because he had to offer me something better than what I was getting in the gay culture. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But here's a lesbian activist that doesn't even acknowledge God, saying that change is possible. So who are we as Christians to say that the power of God is not available to LGBT people? She goes on to say something even stronger. She says homosexuality is not normal. On the contrary, it's a challenge to what is normal. Nature exists whether academics like it or not. And in nature, procreation is the single relentless rule. That is the norm. Our sexual bodies were designed for reproduction. No one is born gay. The idea is ridiculous. Homosexuality is an adaptation, not an inborn trait. So again, if a lesbian activist can say that change is possible and what the norm is, I still have to respect the right 
for her to choose and she chooses to still be a lesbian that's her right and i think that this is really the capstone of what we're talking about in christianity i have to respect your right to choose but i also have to let you know that there's another option and i believe that as bible believing christians if we believe in the power of jesus christ then we have to also offer that to the community as well we need to be more loving but that love also comes from the message of truth I want to play with for you the trailer to our documentary, Journey Interrupted. And if you go to journeyinterrupted.com, you can actually download a copy of our film. Our film has now been translated into 12 different languages, which I find amazing. Volunteers, people volunteered. And um, pretty soon, it's, it's coming soon, we're actually going to release the film for free. And we're just going to just put it out there and hopefully everybody that wants to can have access to our film. Film is one hour. One hour. So what I want to do is I want to segue into identity now. I want to talk about the transgender issue just a little bit. And now we have this word called non-binary. Basically what non-binary does is kind of explain the fact that sexuality is not only fluid, but so is identity. So here's something that you may not realize. How I identify myself is different than what I'm sexually attracted to. Do you see how they're separate? So you can be transgender and you can be straight, or you can be transgender and you can be gay. As a matter of fact, the transgender issue in itself really does away with all of the other labels, LGB. Because what happens is if we say that the world is non-binary, then I'm not identified by my male anatomy or female anatomy, then basically you're just attracted to another individual. So that does away with same-sex attraction or bisexuality or lesbianism because if you're non-binary, means you ident don't identify as male or female, then there are no homosexuals or heterosexuals. Does that make sense? It basically just does away with identity, period. Ultimately, the idea is it goes in contrast with what God originated in Genesis chapter 2 when he made the male and female. As a matter of fact, after he finished the creation of Eve, he stepped back and he said the complementarianism between Adam and Eve sexually even is a full representation of who God is. So doesn't it make sense then that the enemy of the world at the end of time is going to make identity an issue to where we just blur the lines and we don't have the distinction between the males and females. And when you do that, you have no more brothers and sisters. You have no more husbands and wives. You have no more mothers and fathers. It completely destroys the image of what God intended and established before sin entered the world. So here you have an image of the doctor and he's basically looking at this, uh, at this baby determining, according to the biology, whether it's male or female. So gender is not what you feel, or wait, gender is not what your biology is, it's what you feel. And so Jeremiah 79 says that the mind is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? I can't trust in my feelings. However, this is the new movement. The new movement is all about not identifying according to your biology, but basically according to your feelings. And so, again, as a transgender person in my youth, up until I was 20 years old, I completely felt like I was a female. Um, somebody was engaging in a conversation with me, and they said, how could that be? You know, there, there's no doubt you knew exactly what you were. But I told them, I said, from my perspective, I remember standing in front of the mirror and tucking myself so that I didn't see anything there and that I was flat. And I remember resenting my male genitalia, desiring and only wanting to be female. And if you don't understand, if you've never felt that way before, then it makes sense that you may not understand or you may not relate to somebody that's transgender. But I'm here to tell you that you can definitely feel very disconnected from who you are as physical, you know, body 
rather than um, who God says that we are. And I want to talk about that for a little bit. Now what we have is um, ever since science has developed these amazing hormones and surgeries, you can make yourself a very convincing uh, opposite sex person just from the hormones alone. This is Jamie holding a box of the hormones on the left, and this is Jamie on the right after being on the hormones for a year. Take a look at the transformation, the transition. You can start to see, this is Jamie as a little girl, and as she's on the hormones, you can start to see the development of like the bone structure, the nose starting to grow a little bit stronger. You can see the development of facial hair start to come into the picture. And this is just a progression of pictures that's taken day by day till eventually Jamie looks very much like a guy. Now, if this person came into your church, would you let him date your daughter? And this is what we're up against now. This is going to be so confusing, in my opinion, that the transgender issue is going to be 10 times more disturbing to the church and confusing to the church. Because if you can't tell the difference between men and women, then again, you don't know the difference between who's the mother, who's the father, who's the husband, who's the wife. There's a story in Australia where um, a family was actually brought into the church. They have three children of their own. And the mother and father, it wasn't until after they were teaching Sabbath school for two years that they found out that the mother was actually a transgender male. So here we have um, two males in a relationship. One of them's transgender, and they're raising two children that they had adopted in China. And again, they're not even realizing this because the mother, who was really a man, was actually so convincing that the church never even questioned it. This is actually uh, something that's going on in our culture. What's happening now is that we're being infiltrated by the media, making uh, transgenderism and homosexuality very normal. Madonna was interviewed back in the 80s. Back in the 80s, and some of you weren't even born then, but I was around. And I remember this interview from Advocate, which is a very gay magazine. They said, how come you put so many references to homosexuality in your videos, in your music videos? And understanding the media, she said this. She says, well, at first, many people will be disgusted by it she said but eventually after they watch it over and over again they'll become used to it or normal and they might even be turned on and so understanding this now here we are living in 2019 her music videos have been around for almost 40 years and now we see that in society it's very normal and accepted to see homosexuality bisexuality transgenderism uh, definitely expressed in the media Take a look at this video because I think the video is very good about explaining this process. What they're using is the example of media in the, um, in the islands of the Caribbean. Because in the islands of the Caribbean, LGBT uh, acceptance is very limited and it's not promoted. And so the idea is if you take their sports hero and put him in a dress, it slowly starts to break down the prejudices. So what's happening is the media has been basically turning up the heat on the frog in the pot for many years. And this was actually designed at the turn of the century. You can even see 1928 was the year that this was produced. So the media has been moving our uh, values and our morals for many years. I want to end with a story because I want to identify the problem, the challenge of transgenderism to the church. But I also want to talk about the solution. And what I find amazing about the power of Jesus Christ today to still transform lives is really the example, is really what we need more of in the church. And I think that we lack that. This is, uh, these are images of a young person named Ray. And Ray was born Melissa, a little girl. But this is who Ray was after he was taking the, the uh, hormones. You can see Ray has some facial hair up here. And, and as a little girl, she fantasized about her wedding day. But instead of being the bride, she wanted to be the groom. 
And so her parents weren't religious. They didn't care. Dress how you want. She wore Superman underwear, and she um, became molested by some of the kids in school, by some of the boys and the girls. As she was growing up, by the time she was 16, she was living as the male in a lesbian relationship, and she was dressing as a male. And eventually she said, you know what? I really want to transition. I don't want to be stuck like this. She would hear the voice of Ray in her head that would say, you know what? You should have muscles and facial hair. You shouldn't have those breasts and smooth skin. And so she decided to move to Seattle, Washington, where she started going to therapy. She received the hormones, which started to change her body, and she would stare at herself for hours every day in the mirror. But while she was on the hormones, not only do the hormones change the body, they also adjust the mind. They, they cause a lot of depression. They cause a lot of mental problems that will also be with them until they stop taking the meds. And you're going to have to take the meds in the transition process for the rest of your life. They've also shown that not only do these meds cause mental problems, but they also cause physical increases of cancer, and they also cause a shortness of longevity in the life. But you're going to have to be on these meds for the rest of your life when you start to take them. Science still does not know the outcome of what happens when you start young children on these meds to change their puberty. So we don't even know what the results are, what's going to happen to these, these children that are prepubescent that are taking these uh, hormone blockers and what the effects will be on their lives as they, um, as they grow older. But anyway, Ray decided that, um, that as she was taking the hormones and transitioning to become a real man, that she heard this voice of Ray in her voice, in her mind, and just said, you know what, you're so pathetic, you'll never be loved. No one will ever accept you this way. You should just kill yourself. And so she was so depressed, she couldn't even go to the, uh, the psychology appointments to not only receive the meds, but also to receive her surgeries. And she called the only person that she knew would be open to her, and that was a Christian friend that lived in Colorado, many states away. She hadn't talked to a friend in many years, and so she even used her, her female name, which she hated. And if anybody ever called her Marissa, she would clench her fist and look at him and just say, don't ever call me that again. And so she called her friend and she said, I'm really in a bad way. And her friend said, well, come to me. And she said, I don't have any money. And she said, I'll pay. I'll pay for your ticket. Just come to me. So Ray went out to her friend's house and her friend said, you know, if you want to be called Ray, I'll call you Ray. I, you want to be called Marissa? I'll call you whatever you want. She said, because I just want you to live. And during this time, as Ray was in her house, she, her friend would just pray for her. She didn't stick her finger in her face and judge her or condemn her. She loved her. And what was supposed to be three days turned into three months. And during that time, she heard the Holy Spirit. Ray heard the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was speaking to her. And she said one day, she goes, you know, I've never prayed before. And she said, Lord, how do you see me? And the next image in her mind is she saw this woman in a long flowing dress with long hair, just praising the Lord. And she said, that's not me. And she immediately dismissed that thought. But as she stayed at her friend's house, she started to open the word of God. And as she started to read from the Bible, she started to read Psalms 139 that talked about the pursuit of God, about how God is willing to go to the highest heights and the lowest depths, and that darkness is the same as light to God. He's always there, no matter how much we try to avoid him. But then it segued and it said, his thoughts are as countless as the sands of the seashore. And then the verse that said, and he knit your delicate inward parts together in your mother's womb. That was when she started to realize that the blessing of identity, the blessing of femininity or masculinity was a blessing from God. And so she wasn't able to like a switch on the wall to just flip that, but she started to adapt to some of how God said she was, the identity of what God says that we are. So she started to let her hair grow out, and you can imagine that takes a long time. And as her hair started to grow out, she started to um, also replace some of her clothing with more feminine clothing. 
And I want to show you the transformation because this is who Marissa is today. Now we know that through hormones and surgery, you can make some incredible changes in human beings. But I want to let you know that God, God is much more different. Man judges the outside, but God judges the heart. And the change that you see here in Marissa is what he did from the heart. What you're seeing on the outside is manifested from what happened on the inside. We have to show to the world, especially even to our own brothers and sisters that we sit with in church, that God's way is not just good. It's not just truth. It's got to be better than what the world is handing out. And I think that the Christian church is really responsible for a lot of the judgment and the hate that's been wielded at us because, quite frankly, we've earned that. And from my perspective, I've experienced that. But we have to become more living, more loving. But that doesn't mean that we throw out the truth with being more loving. The truth is love. And we have to offer that in a loving way. And I think that that is what the church is missing today. This is Marissa. She got married two years ago. And she's now, she, at this time, she was expecting her first child. Let me tell you something. A month ago, she gave birth to her second child. And I have the opportunity to see her next week and, and hopefully do another interview with her. But that, to me, is amazing to show the power of Jesus Christ today, is that God doesn't, doesn't um, desire for us to mutilate our bodies to become one with him. In other words, basically, he wants to change our minds so that our bodies are adapted and the blessing of what he meant for us to be. So the menu of sexuality is out there. You have, you have lesbians, you have uh, homosexuals, you have incest now. There, there are two uh, gay brothers that are um, identical twins, and they're saying that the, identi- that the definition of marriage should include you know, being able to marry each other. You have a man that had a ceremony with his dog. Uh, you now have polyamory. Uh, we have uh, relationships where three or more are in a marriage. And so these are the things that are out there today. But a lot of people don't realize that the one that is most pervasive in the church is just as heinous as anything else. And we, we tend to have judgments about these other sexualities, but really pornography is the number one thing that's attacking the church today. Number one. Not only that, premarital sex, masturbation, these are the things that we're dealing with as a group of people, a society, all because of the advancement of the Internet. Now we have access to these horrible things. I was in a conversation with somebody yesterday from, um, from Apple, and they were talking about how when the Internet came out, you know how we have .com, right? Everything is .com. They said that if they wanted to separate porn out, if they would have, what, 20 years ago, started off with .com for things that, that were healthy and then have .xxx for anything that was, you know, that was um, illicit or sexual, it would have separated these things. But I said to this person, I said, but that was never the intent. The pornography industry knows <clears throat> that the sooner that they can expose young people to pornography, the sooner that they can hook them, get them sexually addicted, and also to get their revenues. The enemy also knows that the sooner that he can destroy their minds. If a little child goes to the computer and looks at Barney the Purple Dinosaur, that the pornography industry has already um, um, provided ways to slime them through pornography that would come up by just searching things for children. And all of this is done artfully to destroy the minds of the children before they become adult. 28,000 people every second are viewing pornography. That's 102 million people every hour. $3,000 is being spent every second on pornography. That's $11 million every hour. Do you know that according to Covenant Eyes, and this is the most startling statistic, 3% of boys have never seen pornography and 17% of girls. Can you imagine what's happening to our children now? 
This is a cartoon that basically shows the mom and, and she has given her child un, unlimited access to the internet. No, no software um, um, controls on it at all. And, and she asked, Billy, you know, do you and your friends have the laptop? And on the door it shows internet porn, free inside, extreme sex, misogyny. And, and, and Billy's response is, yeah, mom, we're doing our homework. I had a, th- a nine-year-old, there was a, um, there was a theology student in his 20s, and he said to me that at nine years old, he was addicted to pornography. His father was a pastor. His mother was a nurse. They kept the computer in the family room so that they could watch the things that their children were accessing on the Internet, thinking that they had a good system. But this boy went to an Adventist school, and his Adventist friend at seven years old brought him a piece of porn that he had printed off of the family computer. And that's where his addiction began. He would set his alarm for 3 o'clock in the morning so that he could watch pornography on the family computer while his family was asleep. This is what happens in our world today whenever we have unlimited access to the Internet. Any parent that allows their child unlimited access has already set their children up to fail. There's just no way that you can avoid it. Even with these, these controls like covenant eyes, things that are um, supposed to be accountable on our internet can still allow people to access pornography, but it makes it much more difficult. The average age of first internet exposure to pornography, 11 years old. 15 to 17 year olds having multiple hardcore exposures, not just looking at naked images, but actually looking at sexual intercourse, 80%. And 8 to 16 year olds having viewed pornography online, 90%. 8 to 16 year olds, 90%, and mostly while they're doing homework. Masturbation is wrong also. (laughs) Many times I get this question in the Q&A, what's wrong with masturbation? The word's not in the Bible. But it is. It really is addressed. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So what that is saying is that masturbation begins in the mind. Even before the body is manipulated, the imagination is. And you know what? God wants our characters, our minds to be pure and to be holy for him. And so the problem isn't necessarily the act of masturbation. It's what's engaged in the mind when you're indulging this. So it goes on. It says, Then when lust has been conceived, it brings brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Also in Matthew 5, 28, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. That, to me, again, is another confirmation that sin begins in the mind, and when you're engaging in masturbation, you're either looking at images or you're imagining images in your mind, and it's the mind that God wants us to protect. It's not so much the act because the act really is nothing more than an expression of what the mind wants to do. Watching pornography allows you to ignore your needs rather than acknowledging and dealing with them. As a matter of fact, every person that I've ever talked to, male or female, that was addicted to porn, young or old, it was basically something that happened somewhere in their childhood that, that interrupted their ability to relate intimately to people. It might have been a relationship between a brother and sister or maybe a good friend or a parent. But every person that I found that was addicted to pornography had something blunted in their childhood or even in their early adulthood that disconnected them with the fear of close intimacy. And what that means is that 
every one of us desires intimacy. And if we're not able to receive that, if something has aborted that, pornography is a perfect uh, relief for that. Because pornography doesn't require that you invest in that person intimately. You can have a blonde, a redhead, a brunette, whatever you want. And it's always designed to please you and never reciprocal. So people who have interrupted intimacy or inability to relate intimately even to their partner that they're married to, pornography is a great pull and a great way to artificially give you some sense of intimacy. Pornography makes normal relationships difficult or impossible. Like I said, these young women came up to me and they said that their addictions to pornography knew, they, they knew that this was going to interfere with their ability to have healthy marriages and healthy families. Porn puts up walls of dishonesty. Porn makes us disassociate, disassociate to get aroused. So again, many wives have come to me also and they said, I can tell when my husband's looked at porn because when we actually engage in sexual intercourse, he's disconnected. He's not connected to me at all. So again, you have wives that aren't receiving 100% of their husband. You know, you have young boys that aren't able to have healthy relationships and, and the same with women too, all because of pornography and masturbation. Pornography tries to offer us sex in a lesser state than God intended. God is the ultimate giver, but pornography only ever takes it away. We can never justify pornography, not even a little. Not for a short time, not as a test, not with our spouse, not now, not ever. Pornography is always wrong. God is the ultimate giver, but pornography only ever takes away because you were intended to hold your beloved. You were intended to look into their eyes, the eyes of the opposite sex mate, the person that you've committed to. And so how sad that we sell ourselves out cheaply for these cold, hard devices that will never return our love. And so the, the devil has destroyed this gift and we've sold ourselves out for these temporary vices when really what God wants us to have is the ultimate experience in holding our beloved. There's a, an, an actor who was known for having sex with all of the most beautiful women in the world. He was good looking himself, very famous actor. He came out in the late 50s. So all of his life he never got married. He was a confirmed bachelor and he was sleeping with all of these really beautiful women. So according to this person, you can imagine, he had the best sex that was possibly out there. But he made this statement, and he doesn't even acknowledge God. He said, the best sex I ever had was in his 50s when he was in a monogamous relationship with his wife. So even here's a man that identifies with the world and doesn't acknowledge God, but he recognized that an intimate, committed relationship with his wife was the most fulfillment of sex he'd ever had. Again, I want to remind you that God's way is not just right. It's got to be better than what the world is handing out. Monogamous adultery. Among Christian, student, is it, among Christian students, it is not considered losing your virginity to engage in oral or anal intercourse. And this is just among Christian students. Among the world, they don't care. They just indulge in whatever they want. But how sad that even in Christian communities that to engage in oral or anal sex is not considered losing your virginity. And again, the problem isn't the physical act so much as it is it is the fact that you're not in a committed monogamous relationship with the opposite sex individual and therefore there's so many mental issues that happen whenever you engage in sex outside of marriage. Whenever a woman commits to a guy sexually without the commitment of marriage, she feels degraded, she feels unworthy, and she may actually think that by solidifying a sexual relationship with this guy that he's going to make this lifelong commitment to her. 
unfortunately, many times a guy thinks that, hey, because I'm getting sex from this girl, I'm not necessarily committed and I could be a free agent if I want. So what's really wrong with that is that the Bible is very clear that when the two have sex, they become one flesh. Whenever you have sexual release with anything, you become a part of it. There's something amazing in that, that by beholding we become changed. And the Bible is very clear that by two becoming one flesh, that means that in a sexual relationship, whenever you have a sexual release, there are endorphins that are released in the back of your brain. And whatever you're looking at at the time you have that sexual release, the brain says, wow, that was great. Let's do it again. And I like to be very clear when I'm talking to young people is that sex does feel good. It was designed exactly for that. It was a gift of God, but God knew that the parameters were necessary to not only rein it in, but also that you, so that you could enjoy it to the fullest satisfaction. Anything outside of those boundaries is going to bring us heartache, pain, disease, destruction. And so again, God didn't rein it in as a punishment. He reined it in to make sure that we had the fullest opportunity to express intimacy in the best possible way. Does that make sense? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and the two shall be one flesh. Basically what that means is like superglue. Whenever you have a sexual release, you are supergluing yourself to whatever you are looking at when you have that sexual release. Whether it's a human being, a cell phone, a tablet, uh, a magazine, whatever that is, you are glued to that thing. The two become one flesh and the devil knows it. The devil knows that this is how it works, and so he's going to try to dissuade us. He even knows it biblically. God even acknowledges it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, it says, What? Don't you know that when you have sex with a prostitute, the two become one flesh? Whether you do it the right way or the wrong way, it works. And so again, this is why I believe that all sexuality needs to be addressed in our schools and in our churches and in our denomination in a way that's healthy to not only let people know the power of what sex does, but also ways to do it so that we can fulfill, or you can experience the best fulfillment of what God intended for each one of us to have. And I think that that is a loving message. And that homosexuality, um, uh, transgenderism, bisexuality, polyamory, it doesn't give you what you want. In the 20 years I lived as a homosexual, I saw many people that weren't happy in their relationships either. And I can tell you firsthand that there are very few exceptions to the rule in homosexuality of relationships that ever work that are monogamous. Those who are controlled by their passions cannot be followers of Christ. They are too much devoted to the service of their master, the originator of every evil, to leave their corrupt habits and to choose the service of Christ. Sexual sin, regardless of what avenue you take, it destroys our ability to be intimate with God. Sin separates us from God. That's it, pure and simple. And we know that by the first quote that I gave you, that licentiousness is exactly what the devil is going to use at the end of time to take God's people out, just like he used in, in, um, in, the, in the land of the Israelites before they went into the Canaan land. Balaam wasn't able to curse them, but he said, if you cause those women, the Canaanitish women, to come into the camp, you can destroy them through sexual sin. And Ellen White, our prophet, even said the very same thing, that at the end of, the time, at the end of time, as we are standing on the banks of the heavenly Canaan land, that Satan is going to use all of his powers to do the very same thing that he did to the people of Israel. Brothers and sisters, we have... We have information available to us today to not only let us know what the right pathway is, but also how to achieve it and how to maintain it so that we are not corrupted 
And I believe that that's what Coming Out Ministries is wanting to promote and to provide, not only to enlighten the church, but to equip the church and to let us know that there's not only victory over sin, but that it's better than anything that the world is handing out to us. So before we go into the Q&A, Tom, I'd like to just segue with a little prayer, give you a little bit of a break, and then we'll go into our question and answers. So again, I also want to say that only questions that are written on these papers will I answer. Is that all right? Is that fair? Okay. All right. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to basically share um, just your amazing grace, Lord. And that these behaviors are out there in the world. They're even in our church. And Lord, I struggled with many of them myself. But Lord, you are amazing to, to show me a love that would even give me the desires, Lord, to want to give up all of those things that are against you so that I could experience, Lord, for the first time in my life, an intimacy that is unbreakable, an intimacy that satisfies in ways that I've never felt before. So, Lord, I pray that as a church that you will help us, that you will send your Holy Spirit, and that, Lord, it would be reasonable. Isaiah 118 says, come and let us reason together. And, Lord, I love that you don't force anyone, that each one of us has the right to choose whichever way we'd like to go. And, Lord, you will always respect that. You will always allow us to make our own decisions, but those decisions come with consequences. And so my desire, Lord, is that we would educate our young people and our old people, and we would point them, Lord, to the cross and to the power and the victory over sin. But ultimately, Lord, we know that there are some people that will choose otherwise, and I have that right every day. But Lord, I thank you that you have given me something above and beyond that that holds me still closer and closer to you every day. And I thank you in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.